0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at essexmarket.nyc. This week on Meet and Three, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico.
2: I believe that oyster dressing is like
1: the consummate side dish. For an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land, and we're laughing, and we're creating a space for joy, and it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and Three HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, there are lately so many books, so many books, as someone said over a thousand books, on Churchill. But not one, or at least perhaps not one, and that's not unusual, um, give any mention at all to his cook, who he credits with helping him through such a difficult time during World War II, Maybe a brief mention was given, but really, we don't, you know, from those books, you don't glean anything or even know her name. But that's been remedied. In her recently published book, Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook, food historian and author Annie Gray has written a detailed culinary biography. Yes, and it's also a history, a culinary history, complete with a few recipes, about Georgina Landemere. See, I said her name, Georgina Landemere, Churchill's cook from 1940 to 1954. And as a culinary historian, what is so important to me about this book is that Annie Gray has drawn a detailed picture of early 20th century domestic life in Britain. It, so often, you know, you we know about the royal, the the royal, or the, you know, the, the dinners, the uh, official dinners that a cook prepares and, and the amounts of food. But this is, this goes behind the scenes, you know, the upstairs and downstairs, if you will. And it, it, she really talks about, about the domestic life and the everyday life, not just serving the master. And as one reviewer writes, through one eager eater and one skilled cook, Annie Gray contextualizes 20th century food in Britain through two figures who were both intimately involved with it. Annie Gray is one of Britain's leading food historians, or as she's been called, the Queen of Food Historians. She's a brilliant writer and scholar who specializes in British food and dining from 1650 to 1950. That's pretty precise, Annie. And works as a consultant, broadcaster, and author. She's the resident food historian on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet, and is a popular speaker and presenter. Her first book, The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria, for which she did a nice interview here on this show, you can find that in the files, she was nominated for several awards, and her follow-up book now, Victory in the Kitchen, Life of Churchill's Cook, is headed the same way. Well, let's not forget, there are a few other books in between there and especially want to make mention of the Downton Abbey cookbook, for which Alette was the last time she was on the show and she's been no stranger to the show. And we had a good time talking about that book. Welcome back, Annie.
3: Thank you very much for bringing me back.
2: It's just, you know, this is this is timely in so many ways. I think, you know, the, the fact that... um no one has ever talked about Georgina before. Not that many cooks do get mentioned, but, you know, it's it. she was a rather important figure in, in his life during these times. How did you come to write this book? And where did you find so many details?
3: Wow, I mean, it, it turned out to be something of a labour of love, really. I'm not sure if I'd realised quite how difficult it would be that I, I would have gaily swept into it in the way I did. Um Book writing's a curious thing. You kind of come under pressure to come up with another idea before you've hmm. really finished writing the previous one. And having written Greedy Queen, I knew I wanted to write about more women, um, more servants more sort of nitty-gritty, I suppose, of culinary life. The chapter I'd really enjoyed writing when I wrote about Queen Victoria was the one on her cooks and her kitchens, which Mm -hmm. was all very new material and was really, really interesting. So I had in my mind that I wanted to write about the 20th century, but I wanted to delve below stairs, look at servants' lives, and I sort of needed someone I could hang that kind of thing off. But finding an interesting figure, or at least a figure I found interesting, was quite difficult. Um, And I was in an archive one day, just kind of going through books, trying to see if something would spark an interest. And I found Georgina's recipe book that she wrote in uh, 1958, which is called Recipes from Number 10. And it's got this incredible bright pink cover. Um, with uh, Downing Street on it. And I thought, gosh, what an amazing cover. Flipped through it and thought, well, this is really interesting. But I'm sure someone's written about her before. You know, there's so much interest in Churchill, especially this year and at this point in Britain, where there's all these kind of fairly tedious links being drawn towards World War II because of coronavirus. And Boris Johnson seems to have recast himself as... Churchill reborn and you know so Churchill's kind of almost more in the news than ever before so I just thought well you know it would have been done completely done and I went away and I kept thinking about this and I thought well I'll, I'll just check and I checked and to my incredible surprise, nobody had written about Georgina. There were a few passing mentions in some biographies of Churchill because he told one story, which involved her when a bomb fell on Downing Street, and and there were kind of few sentences in. There's a book on on Churchill's dinners, and there's a few sentences in there, but they're not accurate. And actually, it turned out that the whole her whole life story was just missing in some ways. Hmm. So I contacted the Imperial War Museum who had republished a version of Georgina's recipe book um, and sort of did some investigating and they put me in contact with Georgina's granddaughter who's still alive, Edwina Brocklesby. She's in her mid-70s and she's Britain's oldest Ironman competitor. So she regularly <laughs> runs marathons and cycles 150 miles and does open water swims. Uh, and I have to say, she's absolutely incredible, you know, real, really formidable kind of force for life. You just think if I'm like that when I'm in my mid-70s, great um although i have to say i've never done that much exercise in my life um so and she was absolutely fantastic really helpful she said she tried to write about her grandmother and really not been able to find the information that she needed so i was more than welcome to take a go Uh, she shared with me her family archive and the photograph albums that she had georgina's manuscript cookbook that she kept and various other bits and pieces there wasn't much it's got to be said. Um, I mean, there was Edwina's memories. She was born in the 1940s, so she obviously knew Georgina in the later part of her life. But for the rest of it, it really was one of those books where you are desperately trying to find information in the smallest way as possible. And as a result, actually it ended up being a very forensic examination of her life, a very, very detailed examination of the context and the various bits and pieces that she got up to. And I was really, really pleased and really proud of how much I managed to recover because working class lives especially in the 20th century are very very difficult to get to nobody right. valued people at that point the records are not there the censuses disappear after 1921 because they're all still protected you know it's really hard to get to people so actually by the end of it it wasn't just about writing about 20th century servants it was about writing about Georgina herself and revaluing her and putting her back into history because by the point I finished I just thought she is fantastic and she deserves to be just as celebrated as anybody else who surrounded Churchill, but also celebrated in and of her own right as somebody who was an extraordinary.
2: That's absolutely right. And I mean, not only trying hard to find, you know, someone, a servant, a domestic of that period. I mean, try going back any time in history. I mean, we don't, there's so much we don't know about, about these people who had what we now would call regular lives, yeah. you know, but it's, it's just not there. Um, she well tell i I want to know so i want to know a little bit about her i want you to tell us a little bit about georgina um it was kind of sad i've right in the beginning you you tell a, a little sad story about her kids telling her that nobody would really want to know about her because she did start to write a memoir did you
3: yeah she did there was a kind of real vogue i mean the an endless vogue for for Churchill but particularly in the 70s there was quite a big vogue for writing memoirs about him and um, I mean his bodyguard one of his bodyguards published his autobiography there were various kind of anecdotes and memoirs by people who were around him a lot of his servants and a lot of his close personal staff so I'm talking sort of secretaries and those senior staff at, the, at this point, they were very cagey about writing about Churchill because everything that got written was seized upon by the press, was very hastily monetised, and there was a kind of real risk that sort of secrets might come out into the open as 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 such. So people were very cagey about what they said, but there was a real interest, and she was encouraged to write down her life story, by mainly by Grace Hamblin, who was one of uh, Clementine Churchill's and, and indeed Churchill's secretaries and looked after Chartwell by that point. So she sat down and she started to write it she was in her 90s at this point and she wrote it all out obviously by hand with a fountain pen and then her daughter and her son-in-law said that nobody would be interested what was the point in her writing down her life because she was a servant I mean mm-hmm. it's it sounds awful to tell it now and I think it was absolutely you know heart-rending from a modern perspective but at the time it was mid 70s servants lives were not valued people who were the descendants of servants really didn't want to talk about that it was seen as slightly shameful to have ancestors in service people wanted to break free of that world and you add to that as well the fact that her daughter had breast cancer and was dying and her son-in-law as well was dying but didn't know it yet they all died within huh. a year of each other so you can see why it was this horrible horrible time in that household absolutely appalling but the result of them saying that to her was that she tore her memoir up into little pieces and pushed them down the plug hole of her sink she was living at the time above her daughter's house in, it, in a bed set above the garage and her granddaughter saved sort of 1920 pages of this memoir all written in this sort of recognisably her handwriting but very much that of an old person it's very sort of spidery and creeps across the page so there are these tantalizing pages that have been saved that really only cover her life up to when she was about 13 but the extraordinary thing about them is they are absolutely whistle sharp so she was writing this down when she was well into her 90s but her memory those bits that you can verify from those memoir memoir is they're just spot on you know she Mm. talks about walking from one village to another village most of that memoir is one road trip they took walking um her and her mother and the rest of the family going to visit her grandmother and you know everything there is absolutely correct even down to the fact that she talks about her grandmother traveling by train in an open third class carriage um mm. and when you look back at the dates and how they fit together her grandmother could well and clearly did travel in one of the last open third-class carriages on the railway network at that point, which would have probably been the 1840s, 1850s. So it is a lovely document, but but it ends in 1895. <laughs> and at that point, you right. just go, oh, my goodness, she's 13. Right. She doesn't start working to church. Until she's well into her 50s. What happens next? So right. it's, it's a lovely thing to have and a terrible story. Um, yes. But it kind of is well, enough to get you hooked, actually. It, I
2: would imagine it is. I mean, it did me when I was, you know, when I read that. Um, when, you know, we're so accustomed now to um, reading about, when we do read about, it, if we can, people, uh, cooks for uh, leaders and prominent people. And, and you hear about the, the chef's illustrious backgrounds and their training. And, and this is a woman clearly very different
3: yeah. From those kind
2: of people. Can you give us a little bit of background on her?
3: her trajectory was very very much that of the average female cook in Britain at that point so a lot of the cooks that we hear about are those that worked for royalty or they they worked for sort of usually foreign dignitaries and they are people like Carême or Escoffier and mm-hmm. there's a really really established route for French male chefs and they all follow the same route uh, so they all go, they leave school at 10 or 13 depending on the era they go and they do a formal apprenticeship and then they work their way up usually through restaurants in France. For women in Britain it was completely different but equally kind of Rigid. So Georgina left. She was born in 1882, so right at the end of the Victorian era. She left school when she was 12. She went into service because that was largely what girls did at that point. She started work as a nursery maid um, and then that was just a sort of part time job. And then she came back home and I suspect didn't, she sort of bummed around for a bit, wasn't quite sure what she was doing. Stern talking to from her aunt and she decided to go into kitchens. Her mother had been a kitchen maid as well, so it was something that she knew about. So she started work as what she called a number six, which is the equivalent of a scullery maid, so right at the bottom of the scale. And this was the age of 13, 13 and a half. So she was looking after little copper moulds, she was making the beds for the other maid. She would have been doing a lot of washing up, plucking, gutting, scouring, really hard physical work. And then she worked her way up through domestic kitchens. What was unusual was that she only ever worked in very large houses. So most servants at that point worked in small houses. And we've mm-hmm. got this kind of idea, I think largely because of programmes like Downton Abbey, that servants worked in country houses surrounded by other servants, wearing uniforms, you know, fermenting rebellion under stairs, whatever. But most servants, the vast majority, 75% of them, worked in houses with only one or two people, so themselves or one other servant. It's quite unusual to work in big houses, And it was even more unusual to work for houses such as the ones that Georgina worked for, where you had at least six staff in the kitchen. I mean, that is really very wealthy at that point. But she only ever worked for the equivalent of millionaires today. Um, And she worked her way up and up and up and up and eventually made cook um, in probably about 1905, 1906. Uh, So she was 25 at the time, and she went to go and work, again, for a very wealthy family, and she was there, the head of her own staff of four or five people in the kitchen, having done something that was really quite interesting for that point in time if you were wealthy enough then if especially if you were titled you employed a french male cook they were the people who you wanted in your kitchen they were prestigious they cost more than women and you know that was what you aspired to have there were very very few female cooks working at that high level of society just a smattering around some working for earls some like rosa lewis who was a very very well-known society chef running a hotel kitchen but it was rare so to aspire to do that and then to do it was you know it shows georgina is something of a career woman very very early on in her career right
2: right um you know it's amazing to me because it's from those beginnings and then the period in which she went to cook for churchill i mean she had to have some really good skills and quite a few tricks up her sleeve because because the time of rations and cooking during the war and yet these legendary dinner parties that that we read about that, you know, and lunches that were that were served in. Um, by Churchill
3: oh she definitely knew the tricks of her trade she married in 1909 she married a French chef who was uh, older uh, than her mm-hmm. father actually Paul Landemar and he had had exactly that trajectory that all French chefs did so he had left school gone into an apprenticeship worked his way up um, had five children then his wife died and then a month later he married Georgina and she later on said she learnt a lot at his side so I think she was one of those people who through luck and judgement and as well hard work was able to marry the skills of of a really good English chef, so somebody who knew the English repertoire of pies and puddings and all those things that you associate with British cuisine. But then she also put onto that the the tricks of the French chefery, chef trade, so she was able to turn out that very, very fashionable French cuisine as well. And to have both those skills in one person is rare, but also she must have had a work ethic like nobody else's. Uh, She and Paul worked as caterers during the 1920s, and well, Paul died in 1930 in 1932, and she went out to work for herself. So she worked in big houses, but then she also got lots and lots of experience doing society dinners, including for the Churchills, who couldn't afford decent cooks in the 1920s and 30s. So they tended Mm -hmm. to use people they brought in from outside if they were putting on a decent dinner party.
2: So then they just then It was a natural that they would bring her on to be the cook. At 10 Downing. Exactly,
3: yeah. yeah. I mean, she was well known to them. They couldn't really afford her. They couldn't really afford anybody, to be honest. They ran this incredibly rackety household. We've got this image of Churchill as, as a, well, he was. He was an aristocrat. He was very, very wealthy. He ran a, a household. He kept a country house and a house in London. But he could never really afford to do all of that because he was one of those people who, whenever he got promised money, would spend it five times before the money actually arrived. Mm-hmm. So they were permanently living on the edge of debt. And permanent permanently having to sort of retrench in the household. He was permanently writing about how they were going to drink no more champagne until Christmas and all this kind of thing. So they'd employed Georgina for a few weekend parties. They'd employed her for a couple of balls and things. They knew her cookery. And there's a a document in the Churchill Archive in Cambridge, which is a menu book from the 1930s, 1936-7. And it's got the menus from their normal cooking. So you can see what they're eating on a normal basis, which is things like baked beans on toast. I mean, it really isn't sophisticated. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, Georgina's handwriting appears for a weekend and everything is à la mode and it's beautiful (laughs) French dishes. And she's doing things involving sort of intricate pieces of tongue cut up and used to decorate dishes and gorgeous ice creams. And I mean it's just it's so far removed, it's unbelievable. So when war broke out and Georgina having lived through one war, she must have looked around herself and thought, Okay, all my clients are gonna dry up. You know, all the country houses are going to be requisitioned by the Ministry of War, I'm going to have no work, I'm in my fifties, I need to go and work for someone who's definitely going to have a job. And who values food, someone who will pose a bit of a challenge to me. So she offered her services to the Churchills, and Clementine Churchill, who really, really did know her way around a, a menu book and was really, really very fond of good food, was very quick to say, Absolutely, yes, we need you. And she said later on that she knew Georgina would make the best of the ration and keep everybody happy. And reading between the lines, of course, what she meant was Georgina would be able to manage the ration and all the other bits that came round it, work it out in such a way that it It very much looked like the Churchills were adhering to the ration and Winston Churchill would be kept happy because if he was in a bad mood, the whole country would suffer. And that's exactly what happened. Essex
1: Market is a historic public market located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The market's 30-plus vendors source thousands of unique products like locally made Jersey cheese to Nordic smoked specialties. This holiday season, Essex Market is offering five carefully curated gift boxes. Feast on the finest products from their family of small business owners. And that's great news for the team at HRN because we're always searching for unique gifts this time of year. Plus, these gift boxes are available for nationwide shipping now through December 18th. Send a taste of New York City to your loved ones both near and far, and get 10% off when you enter promo code HRN10 at checkout. Visit shop.essexmarket.nyc to learn more, and to start sending some food-filled holiday cheer today.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary women in the world of food and wine. And I've expanded this season to create Giving Broadly, a website devoted to amazing products by extraordinary women entrepreneurs. Check it out for great gifts and ways to amp up your cooking this season. That's givingbroadly.com. it has been uh, mentioned by a couple of different um, reviewers and writers that um, in reading this, and I have to admit, I have not finished the book, and I can't wait to sit down and and just throw myself into this, um, that the food was often used, um, that food was very important to Churchill. And uh, obviously, you could tell by his girth that he Ate a lot of it and uh, drank a lot of along with well. the booze, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, drinking uh, brought a lot of calories with it, but um, that food was often um, used as a diplomatic tool. Yeah, and was this or was this the ra- was this the rationing inventiveness that you were speaking of, or, yeah. or was it something else?
3: I mean, there was a ration, obviously. There was a ration, and sure. it was applied universally across everybody in Britain, and it was seen to be very very fair, but the ration wasn't the only means of getting food so you had your ration book and in it you were allowed whatever that week's ration was so a normal mm-hmm. ration would be something like two ounces of butter two ounces of margarine two ounces of lard um four or eight ounces of sugar your meat was done by price so it would be one shilling and, t- and ten pence whatever it was um but Only certain foods were rationed and the foods that were rationed were the ones that you could guarantee supply of. So something like um, rice wouldn't be rationed because the supplies were erratic. Fresh produce wasn't rationed because it would go off, because you never knew if people were going to have... Oranges, largely they didn't, or onions, that kind of thing. And and with egg, it was sort of one egg per two weeks. And obviously it changed a bit when America entered the war as well and the lease-lend agreement came in because then we had access to things like spam um, and right. powdered <laughs> egg and stuff like that. So there's all that stuff. And then you've got your points system, which also applied at Downing Street, and points were a way of choosing other items. So you could choose to spaff all your points on a can of tuna or you could eke them out with much better... Or, or smaller point um items such as spam or tinned meats but then there were the other things as well so churchill had access to a very very good kitchen garden at his own home in chartwell so fresh produce was never a problem for him in the way that it was for some people There were things like gifts from friends. So if you were, I don't know, Mrs Smith in Coventry, you might keep rabbits and you might swap your rabbits with a friend of yours in the countryside who grew really good turnips. And the difference was that Churchill, well, he wasn't swapping anything, but he was getting gifts and his gifts Mm -hmm. were things like venison from Balmoral. Um, or half a side of frozen salmon. Lots and lots of people especially those in America sent him gifts so he'd get oranges flown in with the US Air Force. Things people didn't normally get. So the result of that was he didn't really know what the ration was. The servants did. Uh, The ration books were pooled so Georgina would take all the ration books for the whole household and go out shopping with the full ration and then she would work menus so that everybody got enough to eat but... The better meat, for example, would go to Churchill and to Clementine Churchill and his immediate family or to impress the king who was coming to lunch every Tuesday and the poorer quality meat would feed the servants. You know, Fresh eggs would be used for the family dinners for the Churchills and the powdered egg would go to the servants to make omelettes. So there was mm. a real difference. And it, it, it was to the extent that he really didn't know what the ration was. And there's a story that she used to tell later on um, where he said what is the the ration so she brought it up to him on a tray because she always brought him his breakfast and laid it all out and said well this is the ration and he looked at it and said oh it's not bad for a day and she said yeah "Yeah, but that's for a week (laughs) um so he he, he, yeah she did a very very good job at using what was sent in and using it wisely and Although, I mean, he could easily have been seen to be flouting the ration because of all these gifts that came in. But of course they were gifts and therefore there was always a fine line to be trodden. And she said later on that she was very, very well aware that at any point someone could have stopped her and said, are you adhering to the ration? Is Mr Churchill flouting the law here? And she was Mm -hmm. absolutely adamant. She had to be able to say at any point, no, he's not. This is what we're doing. We are doing exactly what is required of us. He is not eating any better than anybody else in his situation, who is an aristocrat with his own kitchen garden and rich friends.
2: Well, you know, but it it, 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 yes, that was important. She had to put on the front, and mm. for sure, I mean, it, it, he did gain some political networking abilities through the food. Now, was that her cooking, or was it some of the extra gifts that he was receiving from? You know, from Her colleagues. cooking definitely
3: contributed um, I mean obviously he was head of state which meant that anybody who was visiting would visit him um, Mackenzie King who was the leader of Canada at the time wrote these sort of fulsome letters back saying I had an amazing time with you I felt like one of the family the food was amazing as well so clearly <laughs> Churchill managed to create a good atmosphere whereby people would enjoy themselves or at least feel they were in such a way as to facilitate the conversations he wanted to have. but politicking at that time politicking now let's face it an awful lot of it doesn't happen in ways that are recorded for every meeting that is minuted and gets written down for future historians there's another one which is a, a, a dinner where people just discuss things and it's never written down and that's right. as true now as it was then but it was certainly something that Churchill did an awful lot of was to have dinners was to set up scenarios whereby conversations could take place that would benefit everybody and the food had to play a role if the if food had been horrible people wouldn't have come again um, the king right. used to come every single Tuesday and that I think is partly because Buckingham Palace was practising conspicuous austerity. The food was absolutely appalling. So of course he popped down to Downing Street whenever he could do. And when Churchill was was um, defeated at the election uh, in 1945, one of the leading dignitaries said very sadly, oh I went to Chequers and you know, it was fine and Clement Attlee was very smart and his wife is lovely but I mean it's just such a shame that their cook's gone. So she had made <laughs> quite an impression and and people knew it was her. So, it, it, yeah, it yeah. definitely was her cooking that, that played this very significant role. That's right. Well, I, I,
2: I truly liked what the London Times had to say about the book. It said it appeals to three national obsessions, the preparation and presentation of food, the lost world of great households, as you described, above and below the stairs, and the private life of a national hero, and um, it, it was it's really quite amazing that all that you managed to tie all this in and yet still keep the focus on this woman who was, you know, the the culinary hero for him. So as a little teaser, what were some of
3: his favorite dishes that she prepared? <laughs> Um, His dishes divide into two. So there's the ones that he liked to be seen to be liking, the ones that sort of did his image no harm. So things like Irish stew with lots and lots of onions in um, was a favourite. And jellied consomme as well. So a beef, really, really stiff beef consomme that was then left to jellyfy and cut up into pieces. He had that every night before his dinner. So those two were really well publicised. And then there were the other dishes that he also really liked. but perhaps were not deemed as suitable for the public to dwell upon things like plover's eggs which were incredibly rare and very expensive um and obviously caviar he really really liked as well there's a dish that kind of crosses the the line between the two of them actually and i I put it in the book as one of the recipes and i think it's one of the best recipes from her cookery book and it it, is it sits between this kind of ideal of Churchill as the the beef-eating Englishman and Churchill as the aristocrat who liked really, really fine food. And that's a thing called Boodle's Orange Fool. Um, A modern fool is just cream flavoured with um, fruit. Usually it's a fruit puree that's run through the cream but this mm-hmm. one is cake that's been soaked in uh, orange and lemon juice with a bit of orange and lemon zest as well and then sweetened cream on top and it's incredibly simple and mm. absolutely beautiful i made it for a, a really lovely but Really strange and wonderful dinner party, um, which I was invited to at the house where Georgina was cooking in 1939. Through various convoluted connections, it turned out that someone I knew knew someone who knew someone who was now living in that house. It's now um, divided into flats. So we went over on this extraordinarily hot day in July, and I brought Boodle's Orange Fool because I thought it would be a really lovely thing to do. And because the day was so hot and everyone had consumed quite a lot of wine and I'd been crawling in and out of cellars um, and sort of breaking into kind of bits of the house uh, while wearing a posh frock. Uh, so I was covered in cobwebs <laughs> at the time as well. And so, and everyone else had just been sort of sitting there just drinking wine and staring while I wandered off and then came back covered in muck. And we ate this thing and it was just the most perfect dessert because it was it's So refreshing and so light, and so unexpectedly so for food from that era. And I just yeah. thought this is fantastic. This is just such a beautiful dish. Everyone should be cooking this all the time.
2: Yeah, because the other recipes that you, I mean, you include, you do include a few recipes, and many of them are sort of just um, kind of they're not that fancy. I mean, they're just they're no. really solid, you know, yeah, solid cooking. I-
3: And there are, I mean, I I picked some of them come from her published book, Recipes from Number 10. A lot Mm -hmm. more of them come from her manuscript book, uh, or they are the versions of the later recipes that she wrote down originally. And you you can see in her own writing the way in which her own food changed between the 1930s and the 1950s. But a lot of the food that she published was relatively plain. Um, Not all of it. It's got to be said, certainly in the 1930s manuscript book, her handwritten book, there are lots of very fussy French dishes which involve um, sort of boning out quail and filling them with foie gras and stewing them down and things that are more in the sort of Edwardian vein. But her style of cookery was pared back it was very very much in the fashion of the 1930s for taking edwardian classics and then reducing them to their sort of plainest form really and and perfect forms when i first read the recipes that she wrote down and especially the ones that she published i looked at them and thought my goodness me they're so plain you know what what do these add to my own culinary repertoire and then i realized that what she's done is she's made the best versions of them possible so although Mm. they look plain they are absolutely knockout. I've yet to do a recipe that she wrote down as she wrote it down and found it any more than just sublime. And it's it's rare to find that with cooks. I think there's often more of a, a desire to fancify things, to make them different to other people's, than there are to pair things back. So she was confident enough in her own abilities and in the ingredients, the quality of the ingredients that she got, to be able to say, look, this just works really, really well. Um, there's an extraordinary pudding in there, which is a kind of it's a suety apple-layered pudding um, in the English sense of the word pudding so dessert mm-hmm. sweets, things like that rather than in the American sense and cold it's quite heavy because the suet does rather coagulate but right. when you have it hot it's just amazing it's like this kind of wow this is what I need to eat all winter when I'm outside ruggedly shooting things so you <laughs> eat it and go, goodness me I never thought suet could do that but it's absolutely lovely.
2: Huh? Interesting. I just i i love how you you know weave these stories in, as well as the the stories of you know all the French influence, and of course you know knowing that her husband was uh, you know French, her second husband was French. It's just it's amazing the intricacies that one can envision in an, a household um and apply it to the life of Churchill, we know so many other things, and this is just another layer of, of really interesting uh life experiences and it, what is there anything in particular as we close out here that surprised you and when you did your research, something that or or that intrigued you the most? one you know something that
3: I think the fact that Churchill out. household was so unbelievably rackety. Uh, they were blacklisted mm. by the employment agencies in London in the 1950s because they were such bad employers. And when you look at their domestic staff as opposed to their secretaries, there's been a fair few, well not a fair few, a, a scattering of books about the secretaries over the years. Um, so they tend to get a lot of the attention and the secretaries tend to be very loyal to Churchill and you hear a lot that's very positive But when you look at their domestic servants, so those people who were cooks, who were gardeners to some extent, who were housemaids, kitchen maids, that kind of thing, they really couldn't retain staff Um, and they were really quite rude about a lot of them as well. Uh, and they had one kitchen maid who went mad and, and chased the cook round with a carving knife and that kind oh, of thing. It's extraordinary <laughs> stories, but they just don't appear. It's that. I naively went into this book thinking, well, there's an incredible archive in Cambridge. The Churchill Archive is fantastic. And it was a real pleasure to study there. The archivists were absolutely brilliant. Um, but I thought, well, there'll be loads there <laughs> on every mm-hmm. single topic. There isn't because of course any archive is curated any archive has a selection made from it at the point of being given to an official repository so the Churchill family themselves took out an awful lot of the stuff that you'd expect to be there so menu books there's some for the 1950s but there's only one for the pre-war period and yet there would have been a menu book for every single year staff Mm -hmm. wage books just aren't there so there's a whole layer of life that now we would be very interested in that's really hardcore social history that's just not there because at the time of giving it was felt that people would only ever be interested in Churchill as a political creature and as a war leader and I mean you know to some extent that is true there's so many books about men making war upon other men quite frankly in the best lists list all the time so it did surprise me that there wasn't that much there and that what was there reflected a household that was really very dysfunctional Um, Mm. and all credit to Georgina she got on very, very well with them because although she was their longest serving cook, but they were also her longest employer. And I think there was a reciprocality there in their relationship that was really, really lovely to see. And they genuinely all valued each other a lot. And that was a, a really positive and a nice feeling, actually, where you, you came across it and you thought, actually, everybody gets on here. This is quite nice.
2: Hmm. Well, I congratulate you on on writing this book on... <laughs> I, on the research and getting and you know the information and just I can see how once you dove into it it you know you you probably were hard to satisfy because it just kept building and building. It is such an intriguing book and um, I I do recommend it and I think it's uh, it also is uh, a, an important book to those of us who want to know more about uh, the life at that time and and especially especially of someone like Churchill and once again. The name of the book is Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook. And Annie Gray, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. and, And a wonderful guest as well. And thank you for listening. This, again, has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place